Welcome back uh, from lunch, everyone, and uh, to the afternoon session of the 2016 Cato Institute Surveillance Conference. Uh, we're about to start the first of three blocks of uh, flash talks that will uh, take place over the course of the afternoon. These are uh, thematically paired, uh, very short presentations, um, which in the interest of keeping things sort of brief and moving, we will not have uh, questions following, but I do encourage you to uh, buttonhole uh, our speakers uh, during the reception or a break if you have uh, questions to follow up on. Uh, our first uh, two speakers, uh, who again are, uh, uh, have biographies in greater detail in, in those bio packets, um, will be addressing one of, sort of the oldest uh, questions of political theory, quis custodiet ipsos custodes, in the phrase of the Roman poet Juvenal, uh, who guards the guardian, who watches the watchman, how do you keep uh, political power accountable once you've ceded authority and power to an institution uh, with the aim of safeguarding your rights. This is a, a notoriously thorny question under the best of circumstances. Uh, our entire system of government is essentially a, an elaborate answer to that question, um, but it is particularly pressing uh, when it comes to surveillance authority, when it comes to authorities that are by their nature secret and so not amenable uh, to the same kind of robust public and democratic accountability uh, as much, uh, much of the rest of uh, what our government does. And so uh, we're going to begin with, uh, again, two short talks exploring different answers to that question in the context of surveillance. Uh, we'll have Nathan Lemer, a policy analyst at the uh, Arch Street Institute and invariably the best dressed man in any room he's in, and uh, Mika Oyang of Third Way uh, to talk about uh, informing both the, uh, the formal oversight checks uh, in the U.S. Congress and other formal oversight institutions, uh, as well as the check that technology companies can provide as necessary partners in electronic surveillance. Nathan? Uh, first off, I should say that when it comes to wardrobe, I was inspired by our host, Julian Sanchez. Uh, very few people can pull off that suit in D.C., and you do it very well. So I had to keep up with the Joneses, as they would say. Um, good afternoon. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, as Julian said, my name is Nathan Lemer, and I'm a policy analyst at the R Street Institute. Uh, before then, I uh, spent uh, a few years working as a staffer for Michigan Representative Justin Amash, um, who has had an interest in surveillance policy as well. And so um, working for him and then continuing that on, this is a kind of an opportunity to kind of continue that work and, and kind of rein in um, executive overreach. Um, as you may know, quietly in quarters on Capitol Hill um, in a think tank conference rooms, around D.C., there is this conversation brewing, this uh, consternation over um, concerns that maybe Congress isn't really doing its job like it should be, as it was mandated uh, in the Constitution. And um, as you know, whether it's uh, this president or the president beforehand, um, there's been this growing kind of question about whether the executive branch is overstepping its boundaries um, and a whole host of issues, not just uh, budgetary questions or or questions about uh, the economy, but also uh, questions over national security. And the uh, question of checks and balances between security and privacy are constantly at odds. Um, it, with, with what kind of begs this question is, is there a way that we can make Congress great again to uh, do a better job of engaging Congress to take its, response, its Article I responsibility to heart and hold the executive branch accountable? Over the past year, the R Street Institute, along with our friends at the New America Foundation, have been hosting the Legislative Branch Capacity Working Group, 
we'll call it just the working group for short. But basically, this working group uh, gets together once a month to discuss with Hill staffers, think tank scholars, various policy experts to discuss ways that we can improve the way Congress does its job in many different facets. So the appropriations process, can we um, improve the way that uh, committees are structured and the way that they work? Can we um, stop the problem of, of a high staff turnover? Can we improve staff quality? What we're talking about here is can we pay staffers more uh, to keep them on the Hill? And if there are any staffers here, I got your back. Um, so with that in mind, one of the issues that we've also been thinking about is how can we rein in national security concerns in the intelligence community. This is a glaring example of the way Congress has not always done its job. Um, and this is particularly true in the House of Representatives, where there is a bottleneck of information sharing. Out of a membership of 435 members of Congress, there are only 13 Republicans and nine Democrats who make up the House Permit Select Committee on Intelligence. This body is a committee that acts many ways in secret and really controls the information sharing through the rest of the members of Congress. So here's the problem. They have access to information that the rank and file do not. They have a system that's very different than the other um, uh, uh, committees. So if you're, if you're interested in budgetary issues, if you're not on the budgetary committee, you can easily go find out what's going on. There are open hearings. There uh, uh, documents are available. There are memos are available. You can go talk and engage in that issue. This isn't as easy as you can imagine on intelligence issues. I mean, clearly there are reasons to be concerned about uh, confidentiality and security clearances, but at times that th those constraints uh, limit the ability of the rest of Congress to do their job. So after discussing these issues with a member, number of members of Congress, rank and file primarily, working with staffers and other experts in this space, um, we've identified a few major concerns about the way that Congress uh, conducts oversight. In the weeks following the Stone Revelations, my old boss, Representative Amash, was quoted in a speech saying, when you hear from the intelligence committees, from the chairman of the intelligence committees, that members can come to classified hearings and be, ask any questions they want, but the reality is, you've actually been to one of these uh, classified briefings. You'll discover that it's just a game of 20 questions. You ask a question. If you don't ask it exactly the right way, you don't get the answer. So if you use the wrong pronoun or attribute something to the wrong agency, they'll just say it doesn't happen. It doesn't exist. And Representative Mosh talks about how him and other members would go to different briefings and ask different questions and try to make a jigsaw puzzle of what's going on. Um, a representative from Florida, uh, Alan Grayson, also made the comment that sometimes he, he feels like he knows more about what's going on in the intelligence issues from media reports than he does from the intelligence briefings. This isn't to say that HIPSI isn't doing their job. It's just a question of, has the structure as done allowed the rest of Congress to know what's going on? So with that in mind, um, the other concern is communication between HIPSI and the rest of the rank and file. For example, 50-plus uh, members of Congress signed a letter calling on HIPSI to give information about um, the, the revelations that the NSA was automatically scanning your emails from Yahoo. If you remember in the summer, this was a big story that Reuters broke. They, emailed, they, they sent this letter through the Dear Colleague system, and five minutes later, I mean, five months later, they are still um, waiting for a response. That's kind of ridiculous. I mean, even though the news story has moved on, these members still want to know what the restraints are and what's not there. And these are the type of things that we could probably mitigate through, uh, through better communication. There's another example the Washington Post described of um, a memo that was specifically from the executive branch to all members of Congress to explain what's going on with the metadata program, which are the stone leaks. 
and they, and they still don't have an answer. Um, sorry, take that back. What, what happened was the, the, the memo was never sent to the members of Congress. Uh, they were diverted, rather, to a um, briefing that really didn't answer the questions that the memo would have done. And so it's this question of, like, can HIPSI as a committee do a better job of communicating with members so they feel better uh, understanding what's going on? It's the other problem that I'll mention is staff are not always trained properly to know how to engage with their boss. It's something that Mika and I talk a lot about is that there is this sort of uh, a classification uh, tiering that happens where it's not always clear what a member can share with the staff, even if the staffer may have clearance. Remember, every office has one person who can get clearance. But even that begs the question, with such a high turnover because of the lack of pay and lack of other problems that are going on in Capitol Hill, there's such a high turnover. So it's not always the case that a member can have someone with clearance. Um, an office I talked to recently, they said that the, their best qualified person, who they thought would be the best person to go through the process, has been in process for 15 months before he's gotten his clearance. In that time, USA Freedom Act's been voted upon. Uh, the backdoor amendment relating to the massive backdoor amendment's been voted on. And they don't have the clearance. They don't have anyone to talk to. It is literally like this member of Congress is going into the holiest of holies by themselves. And they don't have staff to help them. So three quick ideas that we could use to fix this. First, to address some of these problems. Um, we think HIPSI members should also have staff designees like their counterparts in the Senate do. Uh, the Senate, they have staff designees that work with them particularly, whereas in the House, um, the, the members rely on committee staff. So committee, the HIPSI committee staff are the ones that really, they're truly the guardians of the keys that can control what people know or, or don't know. So that's something to consider. The, the, the other idea would also be for the rest of members of Congress, uh, rank and file, to have better training for their staff to know how to handle uh, these different difficult questions, uh, make sure they're not flat-footed when a situ like a revelations like the Reuters article comes out um, about the Yahoo uh, story. If you remember, a lot of members were curious as to what's going on. They had no idea. They had not been briefed. Their staff had not been briefed. Another idea that would be worth considering and something that uh, our street's been really talking about through our legislative branch capacity working group is bringing back the OTA, or the Office of Technology Assessment. While it wouldn't fix all these intelligence issues, it would be an office, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's, a, it's an office um, that was existed from 1972 to 1995 that basically was an office where Congress could go to get technical expertise in a lot of the technology advancements and issues. Um, now that it's gone for the past 20 years, um, especially as technology has grown and changed, these, these members don't always know what these words mean. What does going dark actually mean? What is, it, what is encryption? How does it work? They don't have the technical expertise at their disposal. If an Office of Technology Assessment was there, it could mitigate a lot of those concerns. As we know for the San Bernardino case and the conversation about uh, going dark and having a back door and, and all of that, it really comes back to the question of, like, do members know what's going on? How many members even use email? Um, I was in an office recently where a member had just learned how to use email. Awesome. They should probably learn a little bit more before they engage in these questions, especially as the intelligence issues are so intertwined with the future of our technology, whether it's the Internet of Things, whether it's our iPhone, whether it's our latest version of computer, whether it's augmenting reality. All these things are really worth considering, and we should make sure our members are as, brief, as best briefed as possible going forward. The last thing I'll say is if Congress doesn't fix it, who will? Congress as an entity has control to fix the way it does things, the House of Representatives does. Us think tanks and the outside, our surveillance coalitions and our conferences are great to raise awareness, but it really comes down to members fixing the problem themselves. They have the tools to make themselves great again. 
they have the tools to address these problems, to find a way to allow this confidential information to flow to the right people, but not to get out to the outside. They have the opportunity to actually embrace the, the challenge they have, which is the Article I responsibility to hold themselves accountable. The best example of this and why this is important is within the past, um, within the past uh, couple weeks, as we've seen the question debate about Russia's involvement with the DNC hack over the summer. The fact is the Senate's been briefed. We talked about this earlier. The Senate's been briefed on these issues. Rank and file members of House of Representatives, they're all home now for Christmas break doing town halls, hopefully, and engaging with their constituents. They don't know what's going on. They're getting asked these questions, and they don't know. They are getting their news from the media. They're getting their information not from the guardians of the information. They're not getting it from the Senate. They're not getting it from HIPSI. They're getting it from press reports. They're reading the Washington Post, and that's what they're getting. If we are going to hold the intelligence community accountable, Congress needs to step up. And now, and now Mika. <laughs> Thank you, Nathan. And um, even though I was a HIPSI staffer and so had the keys to the kingdom, as Nathan puts it, I'm not actually going to give a defense of Congress or talk about how um, congressional oversight is really essential. What I want to talk about is what happens when Congress isn't aware of what's going on and how do we think about other mechanisms that we can use to check up, put checks on the intelligence community, and especially in the area of electronic surveillance. So I want to tell you a little story. Um, in 1975, a young congressional staffer, much like I was once upon a time, drove out to Maryland to have a conversation with a retired NSA employee. About he, This young staffer was on the church committee, and they had discovered that the NSA was receiving copies of all of the telegram communications going into and out of the United States. This program, known as Operation Shamrock, had not previously been briefed to Congress. It was a voluntary program that U.S. communications companies were voluntarily handing reels and reels of tape over to an NSA courier every day who took them on the train. Congress was understandably appalled. But as this young staffer talked to the NSA employee about it, the NSA's concern was, what about the company? We need the company's cooperation. They're the ones with the communications. How do we ensure that we will be able to get their cooperation so that we can connect, collect the signals intelligence we need going forward. Please do not reveal the names of the companies because this is technically illegal. And we, have, we know um, you're not supposed to be doing wiretapping, but the Attorney General of the United States has made assurances to these companies that it's legal. He's given them letters. If you name the companies, their customers will go into an uproar and you can't possibly do that. The, the young staffer said, but. They're collecting the communications of Americans. This isn't okay, and it doesn't matter if you went through the tapes or didn't go through the tapes. This is a privacy violation. And the NSA employee said, but this is patriotism. This is national security. We need this. As a result of discovering that program, in the Church Commission report, there were two electronic surveillance programs that they talked about. <coughs> Congress passed a statute called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, they thought very carefully about the company's interests. We often think about electronic surveillance and privacy debates as between the government and the individual. And like the NSA employee asked the congressional staff not to, we don't talk that much publicly 
about the role of the companies in these surveillance statutes. But in these surveillance statutes, the role of the companies and their interests are not only taken into consideration as an interest in the statute, but the statutes themselves are structured around the company interest. In FISA, the act passed after Operation Shamrock, the government said, how do we incentivize the company's interest to ensure that the government gets the right permission slip <laughs> before it gets the information that it wants? And so what it did was it put the companies on the hook for liability if they gave over the information without the appropriate permission slip. And at that time, and given those communications, that permission slip was a warrant. We were talking about communications of Americans inside the United States. So in that, Congress thought about, all right, how do we make the companies, who are the only ones receiving this information, it's not like it comes through Congress to get the information, how do we incentivize the companies to think, aha, the government has to prove something to me before I give over the information? Fast forward to 9-11. Worst terrorist attack in American history. Everything changes in the security environment. Again, the government comes to the companies and says, hey, we need to know who are these terrorists that are communicating with people inside the United States. We need all your information so we can sort through it. Again, the government says to the companies, we've got a letter from the Attorney General. We'll give you the letter from the Attorney General. It shows that it's legal. The companies complied. It wasn't until five years later, when the, the program was revealed in the New York Times, that the government realized that it had a problem. That permission slip, the letter from the Attorney General, was not sufficient. The FISA court, when looking at these things, did not feel like it was sufficiently protective of the company's liability or the privacy interests of Americans. So the government comes back to Congress again, and they say, we need a different permission slip. We can't do this individualized warrant thing. The amount of data that we're looking at here post 9-11 with email communications, it's not just like telegrams. It's you know, magnitudes larger than that. We can't do individualized for all of this. It will get buried in the paperwork. We need a bulk warrant. Congress looks at it very carefully. They think about the companies. In passing the FISA Amendments Act, the statute that gave the government a new permission slip for accessing this, accessing this communication, they said, yes, you can have your bulk warrant. It has to be from the FISA court. The FISA court has to look at the information and decide whether or not it's okay. And then when faced with the question of whether or not the companies should be let off the hook for not insisting the first time, faced with the liability that could have run into the billions, Congress blinked. A number of members of Congress, this was the central issue in the passage of the statute, was whether or not Congress would give liability to the companies. And the NSA's concern was if they didn't give liability protection to the companies, that the companies would refuse to participate going forward and that we could bankrupt the American telecommunications industry. Many members of Congress who voted against that statute did so because they thought if you let the companies off the hook this time, you'll let them off the hook forever going forward. So eventually, they said, okay, yes, we will, you get a pass this one time, but there's still liability going forward and we're putting that in. Fast forward again to Edward Snowden. We now have a statute on the books that says US companies give over information to the US government on vast quantities of people communicating outside the United States. US companies are now, are, are now and were then operating not just in the United States, but globally. Now, 
their international customers, post the Snowden revelations, are upset at the US companies. And the permission slip, again, is viewed as insufficient. And we saw in the debate over Privacy Shield and the European attempts to ratchet down on uh, or, to, or to insist on additional privacy protections that the permission slip's not in the right place and potentially it could bring transatlantic tra uh, internet traffic to a screaming halt. So how do we think about using the company's interests now in order to and understand the company's interests and use them in such a way that we can craft the permission slip the right way so that we know that if the government comes to the companies and Congress doesn't know about it, and the courts don't know about it, the companies say, I know that this permission slip is the right one and I will give you the access to the information that you seek. So let's think about a few guidelines for how you can structure a permission slip the right way so that the companies know that it's okay to turn over the information to the government. First, a permission slip is not a blank check. One of the concerns that you have is if the companies get, see the permission slip and then turn over access to all of their communications, what's the value of the permission slip? This is why people are very concerned about bulk collection. The, the government might use the data not just for the, the specific purpose of the statute at issue or the particular investigation, but they could hold on to the data and rifle through it for all kinds of other purposes. The permission slip is not written by yourself. Right? This is a lesson we should have all learned in elementary school. You should not write your own permission slip. Right? You've got to go to a grown-up to get the permission slip. In this case, we're talking about a court. We're talking about an independent form of government or a branch of government that can look at the permission slip and ensure that it meets the requirements of the law. Um, and that's why the FISA court is in the process. Um, and the permission slip has to be appropriate to the activity that you're engaged in, right? And what people often don't realize is that the activities, or the permission slip that is necessary for US intelligence activities operating abroad, where the Constitution doesn't apply, is different than the permission slip that's required for US government activities inside the United States, aimed at US persons on activities that are gonna take place here. Here inside the United States, the Constitution applies still, we hope, in continuing after January. Um, but the Constitution, and the Constitution has a very specific kind of permission slip. It requires a warrant. That warrant must be individualized. So that we have to think about very carefully when we are looking inside the United States, the permission slip that you need here in the United States is different than the permission slip that you may need overseas and that it is not a one-size-fits-all solution. Then, if the companies have the appropriate permission slip, blessed by the right grown-up, limited appropriately, then they can give the government the access to, to what they need, and then they can have the liability protection that ensures that they'll actually stand up for American interests. The reason that you have to put this, the companies in the middle like this is that it is, in fact, their self-interest, slightly different from your self-interest and my self-interest, they have to worry about their overseas customer base. They have to worry about their global competitiveness. They have to worry about the privacy and security of the data that they hold. Um, but they also worry about the security of the, of the 
of the United States, of the world at large. They have an interest in ensuring that um, ensuring that crimes are stopped, that we have an environment that allows everyone to flourish, and of course they have responsibilities to their shareholders. When we think about the company interest, and we think about that closed room where the government has come so often and said, please give us the information that we need, we have to make sure that not only we've written out what the right permission slip is, but we've put enough steel in the spine of the companies that they can say to the government when they don't have it, they don't get the information. Thank you.